I'd like to let you know that Aussie Meted is sponsored by OPC Health, an Australian supplier of prosthetics, orthotics, clinic equipment, compression garments, rehabilitation devices for doctors, physiotherapists, orthotists, podiatrists and hand therapists. If you'd like to know what OPC Health offers, visit opchealth.com.au and view their range online. G'day and welcome to the Aussie Med Ed, the Australian Medical Education Podcast, where we get to interview specialists in a variety of medical areas, asking their opinion on their certain conditions and obtaining their insight into how they diagnose and treat that condition. In these COVID times, it's a way of replacing the relaxed discussion around the hospital by allowing the listener to put forward questions to be answered or addressed on their behalf. I hope you enjoy the whole program and welcome once again to Aussie Med Ed. In this edition, we get to interview Dr. Sam Whittle, a rheumatologist working at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and a research practitioner for the Australian and New Zealand Musculoskeletal Clinical Trials Network. Sam is a staff specialist rheumatologist at the Queen Elizabeth Hospital and is heavily involved in teaching the fourth-year medical students and in training of rheumatologists. Today, he's going to talk to us about osteoarthritis as well as fibromyalgia. I'm Gavin Nyman, an orthopaedic surgeon based in Adelaide and also a senior lecturer at the University of Adelaide involved in orthopaedic musculoskeletal teaching. I hope you enjoy the podcast series, and if so, please feel free to subscribe, give us a like or review, or tell your friends about it. We look forward to having you listen to our podcast series, and we hope you find it enjoyable. Not only will this information be useful for the general practitioner seeing a patient on a regular basis, but also for the medical student revising for their exams or preparing for their OSCE examination. I'd like to begin this podcast by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast has been produced, and pay my respects to the elders both past and present. Okay, today we've got Sam Whittle with us today to speak to us about fibromyalgia and osteoarthritis. Welcome, Dr. Sam Whittle. Thanks, Kevin. Great to be back. Excellent. It's great to have you back on again. We, last time we spoke, we talked about rheumatoid arthritis and the investigations and treatment for it. Today we're going to start off by talking about osteoarthritis. Is it true that osteoarthritis is one of the most common conditions you treat? Yes, osteoarthritis is a very common musculoskeletal condition, so probably the most common condition in the in the general community. So it's really important from a population perspective, and certainly it's it's probably the most important non-inflammatory musculoskeletal condition. Okay, are there any other types of ones, or is it really the only one that occurs? It depends a bit how you, do, how you define these things. So osteoarthritis we, we think of now as being more than just a disease of the, the cartilage or a disease of the bone. It's a, it's a whole of joint disorder. And so the process that underlies osteoarthritis probably affects a number of joints in a number of ways. So whether or not you choose to define osteoarthritis as the, the same process that occurs in the knee as the same process that occurs in the lumbar spine facet joints is probably a semantic issue. But you know we obviously see a lot of other uh, regional rheumatology syndromes or pain syndromes that are non-inflammatory in nature, so rotator cuff disorders and the like, which don't fall under the heading of osteoarthritis, um, but which also uh, are part of the, the, the non-inflammatory conditions that we see. We tend to think of it as a disease of the older population, but it can occur in younger people as well. Uh, when I talk into medical students, I talk about it as primary and then secondary. Um, how do you think of it as a rheumatologist? Yeah, I think we probably think about it in a similar way. We know that it increases in incidence with each decade of life. So age is an important risk factor for osteoarthritis, but it's not the only risk factor. Other risk factors include prior injury to joints, and I guess that's where we start talking about secondary osteoarthritis. There are presumably some genetic contributors to it, and there are probably some other factors that may contribute to people's risk of osteoarthritis, including metabolic factors. One of the metabolic factors I've heard about causing secondary osteoarthritis is hemochromatosis. I believe it's not quite as common as people would think. What is your experience with hemochromatosis as a cause of secondary osteoarthritis? 
that's been my experience, so I'm not sure whether that's uh, anecdote or evidence, but certainly while the, the gene mutations in the HFE gene for hemochromatosis are quite common in the population, particularly in the Caucasian population, and so we often look for hemochromatosis in people who present with osteoarthritis that may have some unusual features, particularly people who present with OA of the second and third metacarpophalangeal joints of the hands. I've been testing people's uh, iron levels for many, many years when they present like that, and I've seen actually relatively few cases. It's always gratifying when you find those cases because that is on a condition that is treatable. But uh, in fact, uh, in comparison to the total population of osteoarthritis, which is very common, it's a, it's a tiny fraction. And in general, what's the most common type of presentation for osteoarthritis? Who does it generally tend to present with? As a staff specialist in a public hospital, I probably see a fairly skewed representation of the true population of osteoarthritis. So I think people in general practice probably see a much broader spectrum of of osteoarthritis. We tend to see the more complex cases or unusual cases. But having said that, in general, it tends to be people from middle age onwards who tend to have the commonly involved joints. So that's the large joints of the lower limbs and then to a lesser extent... Uh, the upper limbs uh, and the one that we see probably most commonly is the osteoarthritis of the hands uh, which uh, can be sometimes difficult to distinguish from the inflammatory arthropathies. OA of the hands is tends to be more common in women than in men, tends to come on in middle age and seems to have quite a large heritable component. So often women who present with osteoarthritis of the small joints of the hands will report that their mother or their grandmother had very similar appearing hands. Do we know which genes or what area of the chromosomes affect or cause Osteoarthritis? It's probably polygenic, so there, there doesn't seem to be a single gene that contributes to it. And there are some families that never get arthritis as well, is that, is that the case? It's probably true, I think. It, it, it's certainly interesting that you do see, and even uh, uh, you know, inside families, we do see people who, there may be several sisters, a few of whom get, get quite florid osteoarthritis in the hands, and then one sister may not. Generally, the main symptoms of osteoarthritis is pain, or are there other, other features you'll find as well? Pain is the primary symptom, absolutely. Um, stiffness to a lesser extent. Uh, and sometimes there can be some mild inflammatory features to that, to the stiffness. There can be swelling and redness and warmth, so cardinal features of inflammation. And that can sometimes make the diagnosis difficult. Uh, and, it can, and in some cases, osteoarthritis can start to resemble an inflammatory arthritis. Sometimes people use terms like inflammatory osteoarthritis, which I think is actually just confusing. I tend to just prefer the term osteoarthritis alone. But it's not uncommon for it there to be some mild inflammatory features, but not to the extent that we see in the true inflammatory arthropathies. Yes, certainly in the fingers, you can see almost little cysts and ganglions arising from the distal interphalangeal joints, and you can also get them in the knees as well as Baker cysts. Yep. So that's actually the production of fluid, but it's not really inflammatory fluid, it's just extra fluid being produced. Is that correct? Yeah, and in, certainly uh, that's true for the knees uh, and in the, in the hands when people start to develop osteoarthritis, particularly in the distal interphalangeal joints, uh, they'll often get these mucinous cysts, uh, as you describe, and you can sometimes people will have stuck a needle in them and expressed the, <laughs> the kind of sticky uh, internal substance. And rheumatologists... As a general rule, we, we like to uh, inject things with steroids, so we're often tempted to inject those with steroids, which will often settle down the acute inflammatory uh, lesion but has absolutely no effect on the, on the natural history of the OA in that joint or in general. Do we know what the cause of the pathology is with osteoarthritis? Do we know what causes the bone sclerosis or the cysts? It's really not known. It's a very active area of research and it's really important because what we've seen over the last couple of decades in rheumatology is that we've made huge advances in the management of the inflammatory arthropathies but we have made little if any advancement in the actual management of osteoarthritis. So presumably if we can understand the key pathophysiological changes that occur then we can um, target our therapies to those. 
So far, we have failed to do that. We know now that it's not just a cartilage failure disorder, which is how we used to sort of characterise it and just talk about it as being wearing out of the cartilage. We know now that the changes probably occur in other parts of the joint prior to the cartilage loss. So we know that on MRI scanning that you can see areas of bone edema in the subchondral bone uh, early in the piece uh, and that these are probably quite common in all people so this may be a reaction to mechanical stress and then in some people that then resolves and in other people it seems to precipitate a sequence of events that ultimately leads to uh, structural failure of the joint and and that's what manifests as osteoarthritis. Could it be possible that there's a small bit of bone infarction underneath it which leads to chondral collapse at all? It's quite possible, yeah. And then sometimes you hear about people talking about actually continuing to load the joint as a way of actually improving the symptoms in osteoarthritis as opposed to trying to take the stress off it. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting question and no one really knows the answer. We probably used to excessively advocate resting joints when we thought that there was an excessive structural load on the joint. And that may have been to the detriment of people. There's probably no evidence that that, uh, avoiding loading a joint makes much difference to it. So there's still, I guess, in the population in general or culturally, we still talk about resting joints. We talk about not giving up jogging if you've got sore knees, resting your back if you've got a sore back. In fact, we know that the evidence is probably contrary to that. And in fact, continuing to allow or force a joint to do what it's designed to do, which is to to move under conditions of load, is probably a healthy thing for the joint, even an osteoarthritic joint. And certainly keeping all the supporting structures active and healthy and supple and strong, particularly the periarticular muscles, is probably about the best thing that you can do for an osteoarthritic joint. It's really interesting to say that because last week we were talking to James Schomburg, a physiotherapist, about back pain, and he actually advocated exactly that, continuing to use the back as a way of improving the symptoms. Going on to the management, obviously the first part would be confirming the diagnosis with investigations and excluding secondary cause. What would you do as part of your investigations for it? So for really clear-cut osteoarthritis, so OA of the knee or hip or OA of the hands, clinical diagnosis is actually sufficient. So we don't any longer advocate routine imaging, for example, of knees. Uh, So if people have got a clearly mechanical knee pain with features on history and examination that are consistent with osteoarthritis and no other features suggestive of an alternative diagnosis, then we we no longer advocate for x-ray in that in that instance, when there's some uncertainty or whether there's a concern that there may be something else, such as a fracture, then that's when imaging would be appropriate. But for the vast majority of cases of osteoarthritis, we don't actually need to do any imaging at all. Rarely need to do any blood investigations for people who present with uh, classical features of osteoarthritis. We really only need to do investigations if there's a concern that there may be an underlying inflammatory arthritis or some other cause for the symptoms that is not typical of osteoarthritis. So for the most, it's a clinical diagnosis. I might add that uh, it's actually important in those early phases that we, one of the reasons we do try to avoid radiology early is that there's a very poor correlation between the radiographic appearance and the symptoms. And so sometimes it can cause undue concern when we see an x-ray that's either much worse or much better than the clinical presentation because it doesn't actually change our management. It can be alarming for people when they see a discordance between their x-ray appearance and their symptoms. So we're, we're, we're treating the, the disease symptomatically in the early phases and so, so symptoms is uh, where we need to leave it. Yeah, that's a really good point. We often see people ask for further x-rays to see if their condition's got worse and my response normally to them is, well, do you feel worse? And that's, that's right. the that's initial stage. Yep. So going on to the management of osteoarthritis, what, do you, what are your steps that you tend to use as a rheumatologist? Um, I'd probably start by saying that managing osteoarthritis can be a real challenge because we don't have any disease-modifying drugs and we have very few symptom-modifying drugs. It can be 
a frustrating condition to treat from a purely pharmacological perspective. But of course, we don't treat any, any condition from a purely pharmacological perspective. And osteoarthritis is a really good example of the sort of condition where we need to prioritise the non-pharmacological interventions first and then use pharmacotherapy as needed if the non-pharmacological interventions are, are not effective. So the most effective interventions for osteoarthritis, particularly of the, the large weight-bearing joints, so the knee and the hip, are exercise and weight loss. There's an abundance of evidence that that's effective. It's clearly safe for the most part and it has a number of other beneficial effects on people's overall health. So that's what we prioritise first. There are a number of other non-pharmacological measures which people uh, may also try, ranging from other forms of physical physical therapy, so physiotherapy itself, uh, hydrotherapy and the like. The use of assistive devices, so uh, a walking stick or a cane, can sometimes be effective for people with unilateral disease. And the use of simple measures, heat packs, for example. There's a, there, there is some evidence that heat, uh, but not cold, is effective for lower limb osteoarthritis. So those things are all uh, important in the first instance. Many people have tried the simpler remedies, heat packs and the like, but have not have often found it difficult to achieve their weight loss goals or their exercise goals. And that's where a practitioner, whether that's the, the GP or, or the specialist or an allied health practitioner, can, can really help to put people on the right path. It's interesting you mentioned the use of a heat pack because this again was mentioned in the physiotherapy talk last week. Another thought is the role smoking has to play in the development of osteoarthritis. Does it have a negative factor in the development or the cause or symptoms in osteoarthritis? I think it's always good to encourage people to discontinue smoking. I'm not sure that it's uh, of special relevance to, to osteoarthritis, but it is important in, in, for arthritis in general. Okay, when thinking about the other options for treatment of osteoarthritis, apart from weight loss and the other lifestyle changes, what role does analgesics and anti-inflammatory medications have to play in the use of treatment for osteoarthritis? So the evidence uh, to suggest an important beneficial effect from pharmacotherapy is relatively slight. Probably the best evidence is for the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. So they have become a prominent part of our management again. Uh, we see things move in cycles. and So uh, non-steroidals were widely used uh, in the latter part of last century. Then around the turn of the century, they went really out of favour as we recognised that in addition to their gastrointestinal adverse effects, that they also had important cardiovascular adverse effects. But we're now realising again as, as the cycle continues that if, if you manage those uh, risks appropriately, that these are still important and useful additions to the armamentarium. So there is evidence that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, particularly uh, administered orally, but also to some extent topically, are effective. And we certainly continue to advocate that people use them at the lowest effective dose for the shortest effective period of time. And the people who've got specific contraindications to them continue to avoid them. So people who've got important cardiovascular disease, renal disease, those who are very elderly or those who've previously had uh, gastrointestinal disease, particularly peptic ulceration. And there is a bit of evidence for the topical non-steroidals, is there? Or? There is a little bit of evidence. I, I quite like the topical non-steroidals because I consider them to be very safe and they they seem to have a kind of soothing effect. The number needed to treat to get an important analgesic benefit is still relatively high, but because they're safe, that's okay. I'm happy for people to, to use those. But as with any of these medications, what I say to people is that it's okay to try them but you have to also give yourself permission to stop them if they're ineffective. Because what we often see is people who come to us who've been started 
on topical non-steroidals and it hasn't really worked but they keep it going and then they've started on glucosamine and it hasn't worked but they keep it going and then they've started on fish oil and it hasn't worked but they keep it going and then they've started on paracetamol and still and and so on and so on and they come to us and they're on eight different remedies and none of them have worked so it's fine to do trial and error to an extent but you have to accept that when it's not effective that it's a reasonable idea to discontinue it because uh, polypharmacy even with uh, over-the-counter or complementary medications can be unsafe and it's also expensive. And there's less evidence for these uh, fish oils and glucosamines nowadays than there was in the past. That's right. Glucosamine has gone out of favour and our present understanding of the evidence is that glucosamine and chondroitin supplements are probably not effective for osteoarthritis. Fish oil is thought not to be uh, effective for osteoarthritis of the knee. In fact, there's some evidence against its effectiveness and so we don't routinely recommend those or, or any other uh, supplements at this time. Uh, similarly, and and that's not us having a particular bias against complementary therapies, because we've our our advice has also changed for some of our common pharmacotherapies. So paracetamol used to be the first line treatment for osteoarthritis, but if you look dispassionately at the evidence, it probably doesn't have a, a sufficiently sufficient effectiveness to warrant its use, and it's probably not as benign a drug as we used to consider it to be and so on balance we don't use it as our first line therapy anymore we accept that most people will probably try it uh, at some stage but our current recommendation is that if it's not effective for an individual that they shouldn't continue to take it. Is there any evidence for the use of geloxetine in the treatment of osteoarthritis? There is a little bit of evidence for geloxetine. So geloxetine is a uh, SNRI, antidepressant medication. It's really interesting now that we're looking at other pathways for treating chronic painful conditions. And, and we know that the SNRI drugs are effective in fibromyalgia syndrome. And so the concept behind uh, a central nervous system contribution to the pain experience has now been translated across to osteoarthritis, which is classically thought of as a peripheral nociceptive disorder. And there is some evidence that it's effective. However, antidepressant medications can be tricky to use under any circumstances. And so it's not considered routine therapy and it's not currently TGA approved for uh, osteoarthritis, although it is for depression. So it's not part of our standard therapy, although it is sometimes considered. What about the role for allied health, uh, physiotherapy and other modalities? Does that have have a role to play? Uh, Certainly I've been a big advocate for I'd like to let you know that Aussie Med Ed is supported by HealthShare. HealthShare is a digital health company that provides solutions for patients, GPs and specialists across Australia. Two of HealthShare products are Better Consult, a pre-consultation questionnaire that allows GPs to know a patient's agenda before the consult begins, as well as HealthShare's Specialist Referrals Directory, a specialist and allied health directory helping GPs find the right specialist. Physiotherapy for back pain as well as other joints? Absolutely. I think it's fundamental to the management of osteoarthritis. So it's interesting, actually, we've, we've seen some evidence that suggests that people, uh, a, a proportion of people with osteoarthritis are still referred to an orthopaedic surgeon before they're referred to a physiotherapist, which, uh, with all due respect to orthopaedic surgeons who, who play a really important role in the management of osteoarthritis, they're probably not the first line specialty that people should be seeing, and nor are rheumatologists. I think it's, the, it's physiotherapists who really uh, are the key role in the management of this disorder. No, I couldn't agree stronger, actually. I think uh, you should always try other modalities before you consider surgery. Uh, moving on to surgery, though, if you feel it has been worthwhile in the, in the long run? And, of course, I'm biased in this scenario, being an orthopaedic surgeon. 
Well, we know two things about uh, surgery for osteoarthritis now. We, we know that arthroscopy and lavage for osteoarthritis does not work. So that, and you know, when I, was a, when I was a medical student, that was what was done and just all assumed that the old clean out of the knee was a thing that worked. And, uh, and you know, we learned, I guess, probably more than 15 years ago now that, that that doesn't work. And it's taken a while for that message to propagate through the community. But uh, I think we're getting there. So that's, that's been an important learning. But the other thing that we also know is that joint replacement surgery is extremely effective for people with severe osteoarthritis of the large joints that has not responded to other therapies. And so uh, for many people, it's a life-changing intervention. Yeah, no, we'll, and we'll come to that on another podcast, but certainly uh, that's the end stage, and we'll obviously talk about that as the last option. But in our, my experience, the hip and knee replacements, now shoulder replacements too, they can do very well in the appropriate patient with the appropriate expectations. Yeah, exactly. Oh, well, that really covers osteoarthritis to a fair degree. It's a bit disappointing that we don't know enough about it, given it affects so many people. We need yeah. more young, keen osteoarthritis researchers, desperately. It's a really important area of medicine and, and uh, the sooner we can get some disease-modifying drugs, the better for everyone. Now, we were speaking to a researcher heavily involved in this area and he was very uh, bond at the end of his career saying that he felt that unfortunately there wasn't enough funding coming towards it because obviously there's so many other commitments required with cancers and other me- measures as well and that osteoarthritis has, unfortunately hasn't received the attention that it should have probably ever received. Yeah, that's true for all musculoskeletal research in Australia, actually. We actually published a paper on this about 10 years ago that showed that uh, relative to the burden of disease, the publicly funded research into musculoskeletal diseases in Australia is, is uh, woefully lacking. That's disappointing. Hopefully that will change in the future. I hope so. Moving on to fibromyalgia. Now, this is an interesting topic. It's a one that's really been developed over the last, would it be 20 years or so, or how long has it been known for? Well, it's a dangerous thing to get me started on the history of fibromyalgia, Gavin, because I can talk about this for hours. <laughs> but this is a, so the condition that we currently recognise as fibromyalgia has probably been recognised in, uh, throughout human history, so certainly since the time of Hippocrates, and it's gone through a number of different names. So at various times, it's been called neurasthenia in the sort of 18th century, and then in the start of the 20th century, its name changed to fibrositis. And fibrositis was very prevalent through the mid part of the century, particularly in the war period. There were a number of very famous sufferers of fibrositis. And then the name uh, was changed from fibrositis to fibromyalgia in 1976. And that's the name that uh, we've had since then. And it's probably the name that's going to stick. How do you make the diagnosis of fibromyalgia? So fibromyalgia is a clinical diagnosis. Primarily, it's a, it's, it's a widespread pain disorder. So the cardinal feature of fibromyalgia is widespread musculoskeletal pain. That's predominantly experienced in the, the muscles or the periarticular tissues, although it can be experienced in the joints as well and, and in fact throughout the, the musculoskeletal system. But the key to the diagnosis is that it's not just a disorder of, of pain and tenderness. There are a number of other associated features that go along with it, including profound fatigue, disturbed sleep, altered mood, cognitive clouding, often referred to as uh, fibrofog, and often uh, hypersensitivity to other stimuli. So people often find that uh, strong smells, loud noises, bright lights are very, uh, very distressing to them. The features you describe sound very similar to a migraine attack. It can be like that for some people in, uh, in some instances, although often it's not as severe as a migraine, but it's got similar sense of, the, of, of the, the entire central nervous system being extremely sensitive. So we, we use those symptoms all together to make a clinical diagnosis and, and fibromyalgia remains a clinical diagnosis. 
people often used to talk about it as being a diagnosis of exclusion, that you had to rule out a whole lot of other things. And that was, that was often the teaching. And that's not really the way that I think about it these days. I think if you take a history from, a, from, from someone who presents with these symptoms and they, they all start to tell this story and then you examine the person and they, they, they have widespread tenderness and allodynia, allodynia being light touch that feels painful, and if they don't have synovitis or other uh, evidence of an inflammatory musculoskeletal disorder, then, then fibromyalgia is the most likely diagnosis. We know that it's a common diagnosis. Up to 4% of women will be diagnosed with fibromyalgia in their lifetime. So even on, on prior probabilities, it's, uh, it's likely to be the diagnosis in, in, in that case. So is fibromyalgia more common in the female gender? It's always been recognised to be more common in women, and that probably remains the case, although... The diagnostic criteria changed about 10 years ago. We used to diagnose it based on the number of tender points. We don't actually use the tender point examination to make the diagnosis now. We use all of the other associated features as well as the the pain and tenderness. And when we've made that change, what we've actually recognised that it's probably more common in men than than, uh, we used to think. But it's just men often exhibit less of the tenderness but more of the other symptoms um, in addition to the pain but also the, the sleep disturbance, mood disturbance and fatigue. So while it's still more common in women than men, the the discrepancy between the sexes is probably less than we thought. So is a name given to this diagnostic criteria used to classify fibromyalgia? So there is a a diagnostic criteria set. The American College of Rheumatology published uh, diagnostic criteria in 2010 and 2011. And so we still we still use that to make the diagnosis now, and that's a, it's a it's a one page questionnaire that's uh, completed by the clinician in the in the presence of the patient. Well, once you've made the diagnosis, what's the main treatment options for it? So it can be a really challenging condition to treat. There's no cure for it, and the symptoms are often very disabling. It has a profound effect on people's quality of life and their ability to function and work and parent and do all the sorts of things that that people want to be able to do. So it's a, it's a really important condition and it, it can be quite difficult uh, to manage. So in the first instance, making a, a clear diagnosis and then explaining that diagnosis really well to the patient is actually really important. So self-management and education around the, around the diagnosis are really important. So we, we often use a variety of resources, some online resources and some written resources to help the patients to learn more about the condition and to start the process of uh, of helping to manage the condition themselves because it's, re- it's, it's a long-term condition and, and self-management is, is fundamental. In our clinic here, we have a fibromyalgia clinic and we talk, about, we talk to our patients in a kind of stepwise manner. So when I, when I first meet a patient with fibromyalgia, we spend the first consultation, which is often quite a long consultation, making the diagnosis, discussing the diagnosis and talking about some resources for learning about the diagnosis. Then we talk about the non-pharmacological pillars of management and then we don't talk about pharmacotherapy at all. And then what I usually do is ask the patient to come back for a second visit after they've done some reading and some learning and and, and trying a few non-pharmacological things and then we can talk about pharmacotherapy. So in that first visit we talk about what in our clinic we've dubbed the three pillars of management of fibromyalgia. So those, those pillars are movement, so we encourage everyone to have a daily movement practice and so that doesn't and that's deliberately a different term to exercise although 
it, for many people it means the same thing, but we want people to have a daily practice of some form of movement. And that might be walking, that might be doing some form of formal exercise, it might be doing a stretching regimen, it might be doing yoga, uh, it might be doing Pilates, it doesn't really matter actually, but, as, but, but we think that consistency of movement is a really important method for managing fibromyalgia. So movement is pillar one. Sleep is pillar two. So we know that fibromyalgia is associated with sleep disturbance and it's probably a bi-directional relationship. So poor sleep makes symptoms of fibromyalgia worse and having severe symptoms of fibromyalgia makes it very difficult to sleep. So trying to intervene in that vicious circle is, is very important. So we, we encourage people to optimal sleep hygiene and, and do all the sorts of things that people do to try to improve their sleep quality. That's the second pillar. And the third pillar is thinking. So interpreting pain symptoms in a sort of cognitive behavioural therapy framework can be very beneficial to people. Uh, and there is evidence that cognitive behavioural therapy or similar psychological interventions can uh, be very beneficial in people with fibromyalgia. So we often encourage people to, to explore that and that can sometimes be the f- through the formal use of a pain psychologist or sometimes it's, it's via some online resources which are really valuable for people who can access CBT from, the, from their own home. Excellent. Uh, certainly having more of an understanding that perhaps the disease isn't causing harm to the joint, it's just causing pain or harm to the area and would help patients reassure themselves and get on with life to some degree. Absolutely. That's, and that's, that's a really important point and that's part of that, that cognitive reframing is learning about what chronic pain means and learning about how pain works, our modern understanding of pain and certainly that concept that, that pain doesn't necessarily equate to harm is, is really important. And sometimes you actually see patients in an orthopaedic clinic who are suffering from both osteoarthritis and are considering a joint replacement, as well as fibromyalgia. Do these patients have the same uh, prognosis as those of other patients without fibromyalgia, or are there risks in actually undertaking surgery in these patients? Yes, there is some evidence that people who've got fibromyalgia are at a higher risk of having poor outcomes from from joint replacement surgery or, or other orthopedic surgeries. The American diagnostic criteria that we use to make the diagnosis, you can actually convert that to a linear scale, 0 to 31, where the higher scores are, are worse fibromyalgia. And the cutoff between fibromyalgia and not fibromyalgia is around about 12. And there's quite good evidence that people who uh, score higher on that scale increasingly less likely to get good results from joint replacement surgery or who... Uh, who may have bad outcomes in terms of requiring uh, higher analgesics postoperatively or having uh, other, other difficulties in the postoperative period. So that's not to say that people with fibromyalgia shouldn't have joint replacement surgery, but it's really important, I think, that, that everyone involved in the care of the patient recognises when they've got that diagnosis as well because it may be that they need some, uh, some extra support or extra care to help them through the surgical period. It's very interesting. So certainly being aware of prior to the surgery also of the lower chance of success would also help them be uh, obtain appropriate informed consent. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Excellent. We've covered a fair bit in fibromyalgia and osteoarthritis and I think we've really covered the non-inflammatory type conditions quite well. I really appreciate you coming on Aussie Med again. It's been excellent having you on. It's been a... Uh, Great experience. So I should list, I should point out to the listener today, this is our first one live face-to-face in our COVID era, so it's a new learning experience for both of us today. And uh, any background noise you might hear might be the, the uh, our hospital that we're actually at. So, um, look, uh, thank you once again, Sam, for coming on Aussie Med Air. It's been great to have you on and uh, excellent to hear your words of wisdom. It's been my pleasure and I look forward to being the reigning title holder for most appearances on Aussie Med Air. <laughs> excellent. Thanks again, Dr Sam Whittle. 
information provided to you today is designed to complement the information provided to you in your local region and should supplement your readings and teachings in that area. Please don't take it as the only way of treating this condition or assessing a condition, but really as one one of various ways of assessing these conditions. Please be also be aware that the information provided today is really just general medical advice and isn't designed to actually be a source of medical information regarding your particular condition. Remember to consult your specialist or medical practitioner if you have concerns about a condition raised in this podcast. Well, thanks once again for listening to our podcast, Aussie Med Ed or the Australian Medical Education Podcast. We really enjoy hosting this podcast. I hope you find it useful to hear a pragmatic approach to everyday conditions. If you have any questions or information you want to ask about us or you'd like to put a suggestion for a topic, please don't hesitate to email us at gavin at med-ed.com.au. Once again, I hope you've enjoyed listening to it and we look forward to hosting it next fortnight when we introduce a new topic. Thank you.